a very good morning to you and a very warm welcome to Crescent Church Online. Wherever you might be listening from, we're so glad that you could join with us. And our prayer as a church is that you'll be blessed by our service today. For anyone watching who's unfamiliar with the message of Christianity, we'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen in. And we trust that God's word will speak into your life in a personal way. Because even in times as uncertain and changeable as these, we believe that God's word is the unchanging word of truth with the power to impact and transform us from the inside out through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that even when we can't meet together physically, God has blessed us with technology that allows us to gather around his word in this way. So let's pray that his word will reach far and wide in these times and impact mightily on a world that's suffering and searching. As we begin, the Crescent Band have recorded Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. And the chorus of this song holds out the incredible truth of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Saviour, has ransomed me. So let's join and sing Amazing Grace together.
Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you that even when everything in our world seems uncertain, even when the very foundations of our lives have been shaken to their core, you are still God. You are still the supreme and unchanging Lord over all, yesterday, today and forever the same. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, that he chose to come down from heaven and become human, that he experienced what it's like to be one of us, that he experienced what life in our world is like. And we thank you that Jesus understands what it's like to suffer. And we thank you most of all that he himself chose to suffer to bring us back to you so that each of us could call you our Father. We pray that as we turn to your word this morning, as Nick opens it to us, that we'll come to appreciate your son more and more, that we'll come away from this service impacted and changed that we'll cultivate a deeper and more personal devotion to you. Our Father, we pray for our world at this time, that you'll put your hand on this crisis that we're all living through, that seems so out of control. We pray, Lord, for your mercy and for your compassion. And we pray most of all, Lord, for all those all across the world who don't yet know you as their Father. We pray that they would see the amazing love and amazing grace found in your Son, the love that leads us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. And we pray, Lord, for our church family at this time. We pray for those who are older and vulnerable. We pray for all those who are suffering in various ways and grieving. And we pray for those who have lost loved ones in these days. We pray, our God, that you will draw near to them, that you will comfort And uphold them in the way that only you can. We pray Lord that you will make the sure and certain hope that you have poured into their hearts a living and present reality. That you will be everything they need in these days and ahead. We thank you that we can come to you and present our requests to you our Father. And we pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said, we're grateful that technology can allow us to still keep meeting together as a church. And last week we announced five key services at Crescent, three on Sundays and one event every Thursday night, that help us to stay connected to one another and to God's Word. In addition to our Breaking of Bread service at 10am and our teaching service at 11, we're holding a live Sunday evening service which begins tonight at 7pm via Zoom. And part of this time will be a panel discussion. And this Thursday evening, the 28th, Luis and Anne-Laure Mostacero will join us at our Zoom prayer meeting, which will be focusing on overseas mission. So can I encourage you to join with us tonight and on Thursday, because it's so important that we stay in the habit of meeting together as a body of believers, even remotely, through these challenging weeks. It's now time for that part of the service that I'm sure lots of the kids look forward to, the kids' song. And this week we're going to sing Our God is a Great Big God. So gather them all around the screen and we'll sing together. And the mums and dads have no excuse for not doing the actions because some of our Sunday school kids have sent in videos of themselves performing the actions along with the song. So if they look really carefully, they might just see themselves coming up on screen. And after that, Neville McMullen, who is one of our church elders and is also a medical doctor, is going to share with us about some of the challenges that the current situation poses to our mental health. And he'll also be highlighting some points for prayer.
Hello, good morning. Some of you may be aware this is Mental Health Awareness Week. And with the coronavirus, uh, over the last couple of months, there's been a great increase in the number of people who are suffering uh, with increased levels of anxiety and stress and a deterioration in their mental health. Public Health England have put together a five-step plan to help people with their mental health and general well-being. And I'm going to share those with you today. Some very simple, practical things that we can do. First one is connect. You're not alone. One of the common themes that people who are struggling with their mental health is that they feel isolated. It's really important that you would share with somebody how you're feeling, that you would talk to a trusted colleague or a friend, a church member, and that really helps to um, lift the burden if you share with someone else. Second point is to be uh, active. Physical activity and exercise is really important. It's really important that we get outside and exercise, whether it's just going for a walk, a jog, um, a cycle. Getting the fresh air and the sun on your face has wonderful um, benefits to your mental health and well-being. Take notice. Take notice of what's going on and how your body's reacting to your circumstances. Sometimes we just have to stop and take a deep breath in and be still. There's a huge amount of information coming from the news, the media, online streams. And some of it is very uh, negative and can really cause an increase in anxiety. My suggestion would be to limit the amount of news that you're watching to maybe once a day. And just be careful of what you're streaming and watching on and looking at online. Um, that it doesn't adversely affect your mental health. Keep learning. It's a great opportunity for some to learn new skills. I know some have learned to ride the bike. I know others have learned to cook and to bake. It may be a chance to learn a new instrument, who knows? I know there's a number in our fellowship who have learned how to use Zoom. So there's 90 year olds who have now got new IT skills due to the coronavirus lockdown. The final point is to give. Give of your time, give of your talents. It may be something very simple like walking the, walking the dog. It may be collecting groceries for somebody and delivering them round to the house. Acts of kindness have shown to reduce stress levels, reduce blood pressure and increase well-being. Acts of kindness uh, are really important. I'm going to take a moment now just to pray for you if you are struggling with your mental health. I want to pray for you if you're caring for somebody who's struggling with their mental health. And I'm going to share a verse or two from Isaiah 26. And it says this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for this opportunity to come before you in prayer. We thank you that you are the one constant in our lives in an ever-changing world. Father, we pray for those who are struggling with their mental health. We pray for those who are stressed and anxious, made worse by the recent coronavirus uh, lockdown. We pray that they would know your perfect peace, that they would experience real calm in their hearts as they turn to you, as they lean on you. Father, you are the everlasting rock and that 
firm foundation gives us great confidence to face the future. We pray for those who would uh, care for those with uh, mental illness and mental health. We pray, Father, that they would be sustained, that they would have wisdom and discernment, that they would also know your love and your grace at this time. Father, we just pray a blessing upon all those who are struggling um, in our church family at this time. We pray that you will draw near to them and that you will show them your perfect love and your perfect peace. Father, we ask all these things, giving thanks for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our next song is Great Is Thy Faithfulness, a hymn written almost a hundred years ago that talks about the unchanging nature and character of God. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. And what an encouragement that is for us to remember that in whatever century, in whatever situation, our God remains faithful.
Jolene Bingham is now going to read to us from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, before Nicholas Greer brings the message to us from this passage. Our reading this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago while God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It was only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Good morning. Uh, we're continuing our series this morning in First Peter and we've come to chapter 3 and verse 8, which picks us up where Tim left us off last week. I wonder what gives you confidence. I wonder what makes you feel confident. Confidence can be an elusive thing. Perhaps it's sitting in the family scrabble game, uh, looking at your tiles and knowing that you're going to land an absolute zinger on a triple word point. Perhaps it's the confidence of walking into your exam, uh, knowing that the teacher who's desperate that all of their students pass has dropped some very heavy hints. Maybe it's even the confidence that you get in your own abilities from experience, from learning, from knowing that you can do something. And I was talking to a colleague recently about this and we were reflecting on things that we had done at early stages in our careers that we wouldn't even dream of doing now because we'd, we'd gained the confidence of experience and of knowledge. And confidence can be an elusive thing when things start to go against us when things perhaps don't work out quite the way we expected, whenever everything doesn't look quite so rosy. And Peter is writing his letter to groups of Christians 
for whom the world is starting to go against them. They're starting to face persecution, hardship, difficulty, simply for being Christian. Now, it's, it's not widespread persecution in the sense that they're all being rounded up into camps. They're not being purged from cities. But they are becoming aware of the fact that they are a minority in a wider world that believes something very different to what they believe. And they're starting to feel the persecution and the suffering that comes with that. And Peter knows that he is writing to these people in such a vulnerable time in their faith. Because it's very natural whenever we face suffering and persecution for being a Christian that our faith wavers. If what we believe is right, well, why does no one else believe it? If, if, if what we believe is true, then why isn't everything working out for us in life? Why aren't things coming together for us? Why, why are people turning on us simply for following God? And Peter writes to these people, and in this passage, he continues his theme of suffering for the sake of being a Christian. And he wants them to be able to stand and face that with confidence. And so we're going to look at three reasons, at least, that I can see in this passage that Peter wants to give his hearers so that they would have confidence whenever they're facing suffering. He wants them to have confidence because the Lord has his hand on us. He wants them to have confidence in the face of suffering because God is in control despite how things look. And finally, he wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has walked that path before us. So let's have a think about each of those in turn. Now, uh, there are some very difficult verses in this passage and we will get to them. Uh, but it's very easy to be a bit of a, a Bible reading magpie and to shoot straight for the juicy little shiny bit that draws our attention and to miss the wider message of the passage. And the wider message of this passage is clear. Peter is talking to his listeners about suffering and he is trying to build confidence in them. So let's not lose sight of that. First of all, Peter wants them to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has his, his hand on us. He has his eye on us. Look at what he says there. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's very easy whenever you're a, a minority group in a, a wider society to feel isolated. And perhaps uh, as a Christian in a secular workplace, you felt isolated as well. You felt like you're the only one there who believes what you believe or thinks what you think. Conversations start about different political or moral issues that are going on in the world and, and, and you feel like you just want to disappear under the table because you know as soon as you speak up, everyone's going to turn against you. And yet, despite that perception that we are isolated, Peter is reminding us that we are never outside of the sight of the Lord. We are never away from his gaze. Any of you who are parents will know that whenever you take your children to a park or a public place, uh, whatever they're doing, wherever they go, you will never take your eye off them, not even for a second. 
And that's what Peter is telling us here as Christians. We are never out of the gaze of the Lord. He has always got his hand on us. And in fact, as well, the Lord's face is set against those who are persecuting us. So if you like, Peter is sort of pulling back the curtain of eternity here and showing us the reality that despite how things look to us, despite how we may even feel, the Lord has his eye on us always. And so with that knowledge, we can stand confidently in the face of persecution. And there's some application from that thought to our lives today as well, isn't it? Peter says, do not repay evil for evil. But on the contrary, bless. Bless. I wonder what your behaviour is like whenever that guy in the office who always seeks to belittle your Christian faith starts to chip in, starts, starts to mock or to deride or, 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 or to, to belittle you in front of your co-workers or your colleagues or your friends. I wonder what, what response you have. I know what my natural response would be. Fire two salvos back. And yet, that's not what Peter would have us do. Peter says, you're not to repay reviling with reviling. You're not to repay evil with evil. Instead, when you're faced with that sort of persecution in your work, in your school, maybe even in your family and in your own home, you're to bless that person. You're to bless that person. And the, there's another application off the back of that because Peter then goes on to develop this idea and tells us that our response to suffering, our response in the face of that suffering for the sake of being Christian, is actually a witness. It is a witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what he says um, in, in verse 15. Um, Always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So Peter's expectation is that the way that we face suffering, the way that we deal with this hardship, will, will be a witness. And that, that makes sense because what else would motivate people to bless those who are cursing them, who are persecuting them, who are doing evil to them? What on earth could possibly motivate you to bless those who persecute you? Well, the answer that P Peter is, is holding up is that there is nothing on earth that would motivate you to do that. But there is the eternal hope that you have found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, be ready always to give an answer, to give a defense for the hope that is in you. And then again, knowing our, our nature, knowing our desire perhaps to uh, to, to get into a, a, an argumentative or a pugilistic confrontation, uh, he says, doing it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, being known for good things. So he wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord's eyes are on us. The Lord's hand is on us. And that our life is to be then a witness to that as people look on and see how we deal with suffering. And secondly then, Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering 
because the Lord is in control of what is happening to us. He says, for, for, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And he almost just sort of, that, that could slip under the radar, couldn't it, as you read this quickly, um, if that be God's will. Peter assumes as a given that if difficult things are happening to us for being a Christian, God is still in control. God is still ultimately on the throne. Because as we thought earlier, it's very natural to feel when we are being persecuted for being a Christian, where has God gone? Has God been outsmarted here? Has he been outwitted here? But Peter takes it as an absolute given that even in the midst of our suffering, the Lord is in control. The Lord is in control. Again, he's, pu- he's pulling back that veil of eternity and saying, look beyond the immediate situation that you find yourself in and see the true eternal reality. God is in control of all of this. The Lord is allowing this to happen. He's already told them in chapter 1 that, that, that some at least of the good of the suffering and persecution and trials that they're facing is that it proves the tested genuineness of their faith. God is in control and God is accomplishing something through it. So Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering based on the fact that God is still in control. No matter how hard the situation is, no matter how difficult the persecution that you're facing, God is still in control. And then he, go, he goes on to, to sort of apply this to our lives again in, 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 in an even more incredible way because he says that through our suffering we will receive a blessing. He says that in that, that first um, section of today's reading where he says, Do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless that you might obtain a blessing. And again, he says, it is even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, that's okay. That's okay because you will be blessed. As I've said, he's already said our suffering uh, proves the tested genuineness of our faith. And that brings a confidence in ourselves. And that is a blessing. Um, But he also makes clear that in Peter's mind, suffering for the sake of the gospel, suffering for being a follower of Jesus Christ, brings a very special blessing of its own into your life. He says we share later on in chapter 4, we're sharing in the Lord's sufferings. So how does God bless us through our suffering? Well, I've suggest at least one way I think that that could happen. As we suffer at the hands of the world around us and we share in the suffering of the Lord Jesus, we understand more of what the Lord went through for us. And that draws us closer to the Lord Jesus. And it also inevitably then draws us further from the world, from the values and from the society and from the systems around us. Last time I was speaking from 1 Peter, I said that one of Peter's aims in this letter is to unsettle us, to, 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 to make us feel less at home in this world around us. 
and to call us to our ultimate heavenly home. And so as we share in the suffering of the Lord Jesus, we're drawn closer to him and turned away from the sinful system and world that surrounds us. So Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has his hand on us. He wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord is still in control of what is happening to us. And then I'm going to contend that Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has walked that path before us. We're following in the footsteps, if you like, of the Lord Jesus. And this brings us to verses 18 and 19, and I'm just going to refresh them again for you. Peter says, For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, as you read today's passage up to verse 18, it is relatively plain sailing. And then all of a sudden we come across these verses that make you wish you had swapped dates with someone else on the preaching router. These verses, 18 and 19 to be serious, are some of the most complex um, verses in, in the whole of Scripture. Uh, there are um, complexities in the language, complexities in, in certainly the theology that can be launched off the back of them. There are at least five ways to interpret this section and there are very learned and very godly evangelical scholars who will hold to each of those. Um, and I'm not even going to attempt to summarise those today because that would be boring. Um, and I, I don't even really have time to give you a huge defence of why I've come to the conclusion that I have. But I'm going to tell you what I think Peter's talking about here and critically why I think he's saying it in the midst of this passage. So let's start with some background. Noah. Noah as a character would have been well known to the Jewish listeners in Peter's audience. Um, he would have been um, known from the Old Testament, but he would also have been known from the book of Enoch. Uh, and, and, and the book of Enoch was a book not by Enoch, um, but it fleshed out the story in Genesis 6, where uh, there's a reference to the sons of God marrying the daughters of men and having these children who were mighty men on earth. It's not entirely clear what's going on there. But the feeling in the book of Enoch is that those sons of God were evil demonic spirits. And it seems like Peter at least concurs with that here. But Noah would also have been known in the pagan culture around the, the church at the time. Uh, there were no less than four Noah or flood stories that had been passed down independent of the biblical record at that time. And about a century later from Peter's writing, there was a series of coins minted showing Noah and episode from Noah's life. So the figure of Noah was at least known in society. And so Peter reaches for that 
relatively well-known figure and relatively well-known story and pulls it into the passage here to use it as an example um, to make the point that he's trying to make. So he, he, he says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So who are the spirits in prison? Who are these spirits in prison to whom Christ proclaims? Well, uh, the word for spirit is never used for human in the New Testament without it being explicitly clarified. And it's not explicitly clarified here. Uh, and so it appears that Peter is referencing those spiritual beings, demonic spiritual beings, who were active in the Genesis 6 narrative. And we know that they were, and this is a limited group, they were active at the time of Noah, they were disobedient, and they are now in prison. And so that's the conclusion, that these were demonic spirits, evil spirits, who were active in, in stirring up and fermenting the rebellion of humanity at that time, that got to such a scale that the Lord felt that he had no alternative but to destroy all of humanity, bar Noah and his family, and start again. So if those are the spirits, well then, when we're told that Christ went and he proclaimed, we have to ask ourselves, well, where did he go and what did he proclaim? And we have a few options. Uh, one of them is the notion that he descended to hell between his crucifixion and his resurrection, usually, and that's found in the Apostles' Creed. And it's found in some of the hymns that we still sing in church today. And certainly in some strands of, of Christian thinking. Uh, but there's actually not a huge amount of biblical support for the idea that Jesus went to hell between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Um, certainly the word for went that's used here is not the word for descended. And in fact, uh, the idea of Christ going to hell between crucifixion and resurrection was probably developed later. And then this verse was co-opted as evidence for it. But the, So the, the word is not descended. But interestingly, it is a word that Peter uses again a little bit later on in our passage from this morning. He says in verse 22, talking of Jesus Christ, who has gone, so that's the same word as went, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter, the word that he has used here when Christ went and proclaimed is the same word for went that he uses later on when he's talking about the Lord's ascension to heaven. So let's go back then to verse 18 and see what Peter's saying. He's saying that the Lord Jesus was crucified. So he died, that he was raised, he was resurrected, and he went, which I contend is a reference to his ascension. So his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. So Peter saying, Christ suffered once for sin, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So if the going is his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, what is the proclamation that he makes? What is this declaration that he makes? Well, the declaration has to be the ultimate defeat, the ultimate 
destruction and frustration of the purposes of those spirits. It's, it's as if the Lord, in completing that redemptive work, announces the final verdict. The final hammer comes down in the courtroom. And, and they are proclaimed as being totally and utterly defeated. The Lord has won the victory. God and good and his plan of redemption has triumphed. And this plan to destroy humanity at the time of Noah has been totally and utterly destroyed. So that is, is what I believe Peter is referring to here. The Lord died. He was resurrected. And he was raised from the dead and then later ascended to heaven. And that ascension was the proclamation of his victory over the evil spirits who were active at the time of Noah. So why is Peter saying that here? Peter is reaching for this familiar story to his readers and he is using it to bolster their faith. He's using it to encourage them that the Lord has already won the victory. His victory has been certain and declared and proclaimed. So those evil spirits that you read about in Enoch and that you love to talk about because it's such a fascinating story, the Lord has proclaimed victory over them. The Lord has triumphed. The Lord who we follow, who we love, who we have devoted our lives to, he is triumphant. So Peter's saying, you standing, facing persecution for following him, have confidence. The Lord has walked this path before you. The Lord has been victorious. So in conclusion, what has Peter said to us? He said that he wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering. He says confidence because the Lord has his hand on us. Have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord is in control of what is happening. Have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has walked this path before you and has been victorious. Christ, Peter says, also suffered. It's a very modest phrasing that Peter uses, isn't it? Christ also suffered. We're talking about your suffering, we're talking about your hardship, but Lord Jesus suffered as well. It's as if he reminds us just of the wider context that our little lives fit into. Because the suffering we experience for Christ is nothing compared to the suffering that he experienced for us. He has us in his hand. He is in control. And he has gone before us on the road that we are on. And he walks beside us every step of the way still. So as we face difficulty, as we face hardship, we are following a saviour who didn't sit and observe the whole thing remotely, but who has walked every step, who is with us still in every step of the way. So have confidence. Have confidence in the face of suffering. Amen.